mighty God and everlasting Father, we come before you asking that you would aid us in the study of our scripture this morning as we are moving through this beginning, the beginnings of your word, as you have so providentially and powerfully demonstrated yourself in the book of Genesis, we come now to the end of the primeval age where the tower is built. We ask, O Lord, that you would grant us grace to understand and learn from what these Babylonians did with this tower at Babel. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us, that he would strengthen our mind and hearts as we look to these words that we might be the better as a result of study. We ask, O Lord, that your Spirit would minister to us from these scriptures this morning, that we would see Christ more clearly, King Jesus, who is the one who truly reigns. We ask, O Lord, that you would hear us in these things, providing us with power and unction in the Spirit, and we so ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So we look to Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now, the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. In this particular section of scripture, we find that man was striving for unity, security, and social immortality. They wanted to make a name for themselves, and they did it in defiance of God's desire for them to fill the earth. Note that the tower is not as important in the judgment that God brings as is the language was destroyed. Since the people's purpose was to make a name for themselves and to achieve power through unity, the apostasy of the human spirit would shortly bring the race to the brink of another catastrophe, just like the flood. But instead, God frustrated their communication and divided them into nations. The building of the tower is interpreted as an act of arrogance. 
and an act of rebellion against God. And accordingly so it is. God intervenes against its builders and scatters them over the face of the earth. And the, the action that God takes here is both punishment and a preventative measure. It prevents men from going too far in their pride. All the earth had one language. God confused the language of the whole earth and it follows this specific pattern. As those men in their vanity said, let us make bricks and let us build, so God says, let us confuse. Because God is a God of reversals. The construction on earth is answered by the destruction from heaven. Men build, but God pulls things down. So when the human race settled together to preserve their unity and develop their fame by building a grandiose city tower, the Lord interrupted their collective apostasy and scattered them across the face of the earth by confusing the language that united them. Let's see how this worked out. The prologue that we have in verse 1 demonstrates the human race was united by one language. The narrative begins with a comment, somewhat of a smirk. They were all together. They were unified. And then, there's this human endeavor. The people migrated to and settled in Shinar's fertile valley. The people resolved to build a grandiose city and tower to preserve their identity and their unity. Babylon was a thing of beauty to the pagan world. Every important city of Babylonia was built with what's called a ziggurat, or this step Hour that reached to the heavens. And that's what they wanted to do here. They wanted to build one that reached to the heavens. Now Moses, having become familiar with the vain self-flattery in the worlds and traditions of Babylonian literature, weaves his account for the purpose of deriding their literary tradition. This narrative goes directly against what the Babylonians had written down in their literature as to how all of these things happened in establishing their city and their presence. Moses is going to demonstrate the truth because Babylon was really a prototype of all nations, cities, and empires that raised themselves in pride. They would be brought down in confusion. And this was basically by Moses' pen through the carrying of the Holy Spirit in the inspired scripture, a warning to the new nation, Israel. Any disobedient nation would be abased. They would be brought low in spite of their pride, in spite of their ingenuity, in spite of their strength, if they rejected God. Here was Israel now coming out of Egypt. What would they do? So the account provides a profound and lasting example of such a judgment on ambitious pride. And Moses records this event for a warning to the new nation. God will subjugate the proud who rebel against his will. Nothing short of dispersion across the face of the earth would wait for the people who rebel against God. And so ultimately what happened to the Israelites? How many times were they dispersed across the face of the earth for their sin. They should have taken a lesson from the Tower of Babel. So these Babylonians have a resolution with some ingenuity. 
They resolved to make bricks out of the materials that were available to them. And the resolve of the race comes in two stages. In verse 3, they make bricks. And then in verse 4, motivated by their initial success, they moved to a grander scale by creating a tower. Met by the initial success of creating these bricks, they then advanced to a greater resolution. Come, let us build now. And it's basically the same grammatical construction as the preceding resolve, but they wanted to create something that would be a pattern for a fortress or an acropolis, something that would highlight their establishment in unity. And they were going to build it with its top in the heavens that really reflects the bold spirit of the workers. Even though it's hyperbolic language, it's still used to express security. They wanted to do this so that they could be secure, so that they could be unified, so that they could be one. And they had ambition in verse 4. They resolved to develop a tower city to make a name for themselves and to prevent being scattered, which is exactly the opposite of what the cultural mandate that God had placed on his people was. They had a purpose. They wished to preserve their name, first part of verse 4. And they had a fear which is the last part of verse 4, they didn't want to be scattered abroad. Ambition and fear motivate pride. The purpose of their building venture was fame. They wished to find security by arrogantly making a name for themselves. That's the basic characteristic of culture, is it not? And that's what's seen here. Underlying anxiety, the fear of being separated and disconnected, and the desire for fame, a sense of security in a powerful reputation, that's what they wanted. That's what they wanted to accomplish. And then, we see the Lord descend to investigate their building. This is actually supposed to be somewhat humorous. God will not permit proud, rebellious acts to succeed, and so he intervenes. Investigating the enterprise of the human race and knowing the dangerous potential for their unified pride, the Lord confounded their speech and scattered them abroad. That's verses 5 through 8. He investigates the activities of arrogant mortals. It's the idea. The description, which is it's written very anthropomorphically, uh, ascribing human attributes to God. It describes the Lord's close interest in participation in human affairs. He didn't need to come down to look at their work. In fact, his coming down implies prior knowledge that he already knew what, he, what they were doing. But the idea, the point, is that the tower that was supposed to reach the heavens didn't. And it fell exceedingly short. And as a result of falling exceedingly short... The Lord, the purpose of his coming was to see this little work. And it, it, it kind of, the, the idea that the Lord is coming to see is that there is this close investigation that's going on. He has to come down and kind of squint to see what's going on. So the narrative at this point is filled with condescension. And referring to them as sons of the earth, basically it shows them to be these little earthlings. And that's the idea that the narrative is pointing out. 
Here they're building this tower to the heavens, and God is in a way bothered by these little earthlings who are building this little thing that he has to go down and squint to see. They, in their arrogance and pride, think that something great is going on, but ultimately this really strikes at the very heart of all of the Babylonian literature, which has credited the work of building cities to the gods. But, according to Genesis, the work was by these little earthlings, and it wasn't celestial at all. So, knowing their potential was dangerously evil, the Lord resolved to scatter them across the face of the earth. If they're not going to do what they were supposed to do in the beginning, God will just do it for them. So with the story, the common history of all humankind comes to an abrupt end as the human race is hopelessly scattered across the face of the entire earth. And this fact makes the present narrative so different from those proceeding in it because in the others you had a provision of some kind. You know, you had some kind of grace, some promise of a blessing, a hope of salvation, some way of escape. Nothing here. Nothing at all. There's no clothing for the naked sinner, no protective mark for the fugitive, no rainbow in the sky, nothing. The primeval age ends with judgmental scattering and complete confusion. The blessing is not here. The blessing is later. The world will have to await a new history that God is going to begin again with. And he's going to begin that in Genesis chapter 12 when he pulls out from among these scattered nations a pagan man from Ur in the Chaldeans and begins a brand new nation beginning with him. So the Lord concluded that nothing would be withheld from their designs, so he destroys their unity. God knows the danger of collective apostasy. And the Lord said, if as one people all having one language they have begun to act this way, now nothing that they propose to do will be out of their reach. It follows very closely, Genesis 3.22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, a man has become like one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put his hand out and I'll take of the tree of life and eat and live forever, they have to go down and cast him out. Very much paralleled. The potential for calamity is dangerous, and so God will prevent it. Continuing to speak, the Lord says, Come, let us go down and confound their language so that they cannot understand one another. And the second verb describes the actual purpose. Let us confound. This confusion led to the diversity of their understanding and to, to their dispersion overall. Once the understanding of one another was confounded, the division would be affected in them. They wouldn't be able to be unified in any way. So the Lord scatters them across the face of the earth and their project ceases. He casts off the expectations of where that pride is going to lead them. So the Lord scattered them from there across the face of the whole earth and they ceased building the city. So their greatest fear, out of verse 4, came on them. The place of unity, Sam, the Hebrew Sam, which is there, became the place of dispersion. Miss Sam, from there, they were dispersed and scattered. Their view was towards centrality, but God moved them universally out into all of the world. 
So the city was unfinished, and the rebellious people did not finish their goal. So the human race was disunited and scattered by the Lord's making a babel of their one language. Now, this is a very clever wordplay that Moses writes down here. Verse 9 announces, Therefore, that is why the name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the lip, or the language, of all the earth and scattered them across the face of the whole earth. The word Babel, confusion, is the proud Babylonian's name. The story shows how this gate of the gods that they were building fell far short of expectation, ending in confusion and chaos. And the Babylonians kept the name, which simply means confusion. So, God scattered them, stopped them. Let's look at what doctrine we might pull out of the text. First, the nations were dispersed due to their rebellion, pride, and apostasy in uniting at Babel. All nations that rebel will be dispersed. The text demonstrates that the present number of languages that form national barriers is a testimony to man's rebellion, pride, and arrogance. Every time you hear someone speaking in a language you don't understand, that is a testimony to sin. Every time you hear someone speaking in French and you don't understand them, every time someone speaks in Creole, when we speak in English and somebody else speaks Chinese and they don't understand us, it's a testimony to sin. It was at Babel, that city founded by Nimrod, that city known for its pride and its vanity, that seat of rebellion toward the true God and pagan worship of the false gods, that the Lord turned ingenuity and ambition into chaos and confusion. Their language is turned against them. Every time you hear some language, every time you see a course, think about it, it's a course in school to learn another language because unity is impossible without communication. So note that language demonstrates judgment. Just like you see the rainbow in the sky, just like you see people wearing clothes, just as you hear various languages. All of these are judgments against the human race for their sin. Secondly, those prideful are the ones that resist God and truly rebel against King Jesus. For the Christian, the lesson is very clear. If Christians profess to be Christians, they must obey God's will. For the covenanted community that thrives on pride and refuses to obey will be scattered. The account of the scattering at Babel has a theological significance to God's people. Those who exalt themselves shall be abased. As Jesus says in Matthew 23, 12, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. God demonstrates his sovereignty over the silly little plans of foolish mortals, turning their rebellion into submission to his will. 
those who humble themselves, though in this way, before God, God will exalt. But those who exalt themselves, God will abase. Why do men do that? Because rebellion is deep-seated in the fall of man. Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? Genesis 11 really demonstrates the epitome of rebellion against God. They didn't listen to God's word. They did what they wanted to do. They followed their own desires. It wasn't that the fall had infected just a few, but we see the whole of the people conspiring against God. All of them. All they wanted was personal glory. Calvin says, this is the perpetual infatuation of the world to neglect heaven, and to seek immortality on earth, where everything is fading away. They encouraged one another diligently to evil. And they followed one another to do evil by peer pressure. Come, let us see if we can do this together. Oh, we can. Come, let us build. They encouraged one another. They encouraged one another in rebellion and sin. But God is long-suffering towards humanity for his own purposes. He scatters them instead of instantaneously destroying them, which they deserved. Man deserves to be cast into outer darkness forever and ever, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what, that's what he deserves. Where the worm doesn't die and the fire isn't quenched. Man deserves another flood. That's what he deserves. But because of God's mercy and the care he has for his covenant people, he is long-suffering towards the earth and all the rebellion upon it. The Tower of Babel, think about it, it wasn't new. Adam, Cain, Lamech, Ham, all of them were rebellious. All of them were arrogant. All sought their own way for their own purpose and their own agenda far before the tower was ever constructed. It was simply a gathering of rebellion together that made this more poignant. And man is really no different than, than, than he is today. He's still the same. He still wants to build grandiose things. He still wants to come collectively together. Would you rather be in the jungle or would you rather be in Coconut Creek, Florida? Where would you rather be? Would you rather be in a place where there's a Starbucks on every corner, where you can go to the grocery store, or would you rather be scattered over the face of the earth where you have to build and try to survive over the face of the earth? Judges 21:25 says, And there was no king in Israel, and everyone did was right in their own eyes. This is what people do today. They do what's right in their own eyes. What does God do today? Does he come with impending judgment? Oh, no, he doesn't do that. Why doesn't he come? Well, people ask that exact same question in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that talks about God desiring all men repenting so that none of us should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Well, why doesn't he destroy all these towers of Babel now? Well, the same answer that Peter gives is the same answer that God wanted in Genesis 11, that we see that happens in Genesis 12, that we see that still happens today. God is looking for a covenant community. 
He's looking for his people to be saved and brought out of the dispersed nations. And as a result, they come together under his grace and they're saved. And in doing such things, they are brought together under God's umbrella of salvation. God is still gathering his people, which is why he puts up with not judging the whole earth right now. And he puts up with them in his long suffering. You and I would not be saved if God had judged these men at that time with final judgment and would have been done. We would not even have existed. Listen to how he says it in the prophets in Zephaniah 3, 9 to 11. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed one, shall bring my offspring. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Now this is the now and not yet, as we even spoke the other day concerning Jeremiah in the now and not yet. In 31, 32, 33, 34, talking about the time in which all will have the law written on their heart and mind. All will be exalted. All will call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord in the heavenly city. But now, while we are living, living in this temporary time, we have the, the now of it, though we expect the not yet of it. Final judgment will come. Final judgment does await, but only after Christ is finished reigning over wicked hearts to turn them from darkness to light. He will lose none that the Father gives him. And so God is long-suffering to all of these towers of Babel, all of the arrogance, all of the pride that is across the, the world today even. All the nations shall be gathered before Christ in the last day, as Matthew 25 demonstrates in Christ's discourse. And the wicked will be plucked up and thrown away, as he uses the example, like rotten fish, like bad fish. And the righteous will be brought together. They will dwell on their holy mountain forever. And as a result, we will dwell and praise him. But now we have to put up with some of these towers. These rebellious people did not listen to God's word, and God rejected them. In which we should also take note that awful things befall people when they don't hear, he, uh, heed the word of God. When they don't hear the word of God or heed the word of God. Ignorance being the greatest judgment. Ignorance is the greatest judgment in that particular means, in temporary states. Because that means that in that ignorance they don't follow God. And God does not allow them to come to know him. And if we do not listen to God's word... We do what we want to do. That is why the catechism begins with the question, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But how can you enjoy a God that you don't know? How can you glorify a God that you are ignorant of if you don't listen to his word? When one surveys the various nations of the earth, they see men glorying in their achievements in themselves instead of God. 
the tower, remember, was to reach into the heavens. But no matter how high they built the tower, no matter how much work they tried to make a name for themselves and seek out their own high pride and glory, no matter how much work was put into it, the glorious God must descend to see what little earthlings are doing in order to judge them for their sin. Rejecting God's word is rejecting God. And what does God do to those who reject his word? Hosea 4.6 my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. These are promises that are still today. That is why Hebrews is set in contrast to the Mosaic dispensation and the Sinai law, in that Jesus fulfilled all these things. However, you go about tasting the heavenly gift, and then you trample the Son of God underfoot, and you are in the church and in covenant with God. Listen, at that point, there is no more shedding of blood. There's no more forgiveness. There's no more for you. God says he rejects you. So, rebellious attitudes and arrogance in hearing God's word will be judged in a spiritual manner now. And in a final manner, then. Thus, secondly, there is the necessity of submissive obedience to Christ the King and the Word of God. We must, of necessity, be submissive to it. The surrender of the Christian mind and heart to God is continued daily in its sanctification. It's necessary to salvation. There must be an entire submission to his, to his will, which is totally and completely the opposite of what the Babylonians did. There has to be a steady and a strong determination to obey the commandments of Christ. Renunciation of the world as the chief good. And instead, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a fruit of hearing and believing the word. These, though, cannot occur before the one thing needful, to cast the soul humbly and penitently upon the atoning work of King Jesus. He who has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ finds that in so doing, his heart has already arrested by Christ. So he can believe. Otherwise, he can't. G.T. Shedd says this, but he who attempts to give his heart to God before he has believed on the Son of God is in tempting an impossibility. People who are rebellious first have to be arrested by God. God can either come down and scatter them across the face of the earth and reject them for rejecting him, or he can pull them in and draw them in by his word, by his power, by the power of King Christ. One is either a rebellious person who does not heed the word, or one is in submissive obedience to Christ's word. King Jesus says in Luke 6.46, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? For us, for we who are Christians, we want to follow Christ, and heed Christ, and submit to Christ, and hear the king's beckoning to us, which is the exact opposite of those of the tower who worked in unity, but for the exact opposite that God desired. They rebelled. They didn't care what God had said. 
They didn't care that God said go over all the earth and subdue it. They didn't care to, to expand the garden. Instead, they followed their own evil dictates in deep-seated rebellion. And what God did was basically excommunicate them. That's what he did. He excommunicated them in the dispersion. And from among them took a man, one single man. And after he had dispersed them, took that one man, called him out from his father's house, and built a brand new nation from him. A new covenanted people. So, in those ideas, those who rebel against God, God will judge. And those who are submissive to King Christ will be blessed. As you see, Genesis continues to enact covenant stipulations. Blessing and cursing. Based on whether or not they're heeding the word of God. And again, be reminded, there's no hope here. God has to start over again. He has to start with a brand new people. So let's take two lessons out of this and apply it to ourselves. And I want you to take a lesson from the Babylonians in two ways. First, take a lesson from their apostasy. Reject the word and God will reject you. A professing Christian is only as good as God's grace and the demonstration of his profession. You have to think about that. Reject God's word, God will reject you. They had a problem with authority. The word was orally transmitted by Noah, who was alive at this time. We don't hear anything about Noah, though, do we? Moses writes about what happens to nations that reject the word. We've already talked about that Noah was a righteous preacher. Moses is not going to go over that again. Now, it's more important for the nation of Israel to really understand. It's more important for the church to understand that you reject and have a problem with authority. God will reject you. They also had a problem with what was known. The word of God was known. The word of God was being preached. They had a problem with that. The word didn't fit into their plans. If it doesn't fit into their plans, they decided to throw it away. Instead, they decided to get together, build a tower, make a name for themselves instead of a name for God. They had a problem with knowing what God said. They were not known for inquiring about the word of God. They were known for rejecting the word of God and being in rebellion to it. Apostasy in this way is turning away from the truth after you hear the truth. What was their fear? That they would be dispersed. They knew what God wanted them to do. They knew that God wanted them to go out and affect the cultural mandate across the planet. They didn't want to do that. That's too hard. They hated the word. People often hate God's word. And they hate it because their minds are darkened. They hate it because they can't take the word of God and accommodate it to their own lusts and desires. and They love to advance their own false religion because it makes them feel better. And ignorance and unbelief are two, two chief reasons why the Babylonians and all men apostatize. And that's a lesson that we have to take. If we reject the word, God will reject us. That's lesson one. Take a lesson from their apostasy. Secondly, though, take a lesson and imitate the Babylonians. 
imitate them, but in a different way. Take a lesson from encouraging one another. They encouraged one another twice in the text. It's set as parallels. Come, let us, come, let us. And they encouraged one another to rebel against God and to be unified in the wrong way. Well, we take a lesson from them because people will follow that which is a smart idea, a good idea, an ingenuous idea. Take a lesson from encouraging one another, but do it in the truth. We encourage one another as a covenant in community. Does God want us to come together? Yes. He wants his people to come together because he has drawn them out from the world to be separated from it and to be united together in the truth under King Jesus, who is the rightful king, not like judges, in which everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and not like the Babylonians who did what was right in their own eyes. Instead, come together, unify. Unity is a good thing. It just has to be done in the right way. We must be sure to encourage one another in the truth as it is in Jesus. Listen to what Ephesians 4, 20-24 says. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness." So, how can a man be a Christian and not learn about Christ and not be encouraged about him? How could he not be interested as to what Habakkuk says about Christ or First Chronicles says about Christ or what Romans says about Christ? We come together and we study together and we encourage one another together because that is where our support comes from, from the word. Encouragement equals reassurance. It, it is support. It is assistance. In the Old Testament, they are encouraged to encourage one another. Deuteronomy 138, Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there and encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Or 328 in Deuteronomy, but command Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him. Job 16.5, but I would strengthen you with my mouth, and the comfort of my lips would relieve your grief. We are to encourage one another with the words of the mouth, which God says is encouraging one another in learning Christ. In the New Testament, it's the same. The parakaleo, to exhort, to admonish, to do something. To spur people on to good works. Good works, not evil works. Acts 15, 31-32, they rejoiced over the letter. They got a letter, and they rejoiced over it. The Jerusalem decree admonished them and gave them instruction. They were encouraged. Romans 12, 8, Paul says, He who encourages, encourage. It's a spiritual gift, no less. Tychius, mentioned in Ephesians 6.22 and Colossians 4.8, mentioned twice in regards to his encouraging people to do that which was right. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage each other and edify one another, just as you are also doing. How often do we do that? How often did the Babylonians do it? Hebrews 3.13 says, Encourage one another daily. 
No wonder the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete, the comforter or the encourager. And the Holy Spirit, whom the Father shall send in my name, shall teach you all things and remind you of everything that I have said to you. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He's the encourager in that way. The Babylonians, in building the tower, encouraged one another to bad works, to evil works, to rebellion. We are to encourage one another in good works that we might learn Christ together. And so the doctrine tells us that the church must encourage and must spur one another to good works so that they may come to know Jesus Christ in a deeper relationship and be biblically unified, that they may be as one as we are one. It's not that God didn't want the people to be one, but he wanted the whole planet to be engulfed in the encouragement of good works according to his word, and they didn't do that. Instead, they ran from that, and they encouraged one another to rebel against him. As good works are accomplished according to the will of God, we grow in grace. Each of us should have rallied around all of each other in encouraging one another. Ask yourself, do you encourage one another? The doctrine of encouragement in the word is neglected. It's one of the biggest sins in the church today. It's the neglect of encouragement in the body of Christ because Satan is against godly unity. You can always see a hearty and sincere Christian. He loves the word. He's taught by it, rebuked by it, admonished by it, exhorted by it. But as a body, we must encourage one another daily, every day. A healthy body needs encouragement from one another. And one of Satan's most devastating and subtle tactics that he has against the church is to turn the community of worshiping believers into a society of individuals. Why is encouraging one another neglected? How do you know anyone cares about anyone else if you don't talk with them, if you don't encourage them, if you don't speak with them? Maybe people are afraid of developing relationships. Maybe we're afraid of allowing other people to find out who we really are. The Babylonians didn't have a problem with that. That's what caused them to be deep-seated in their rebellion because they went about it in the wrong way. Because, see, really, in essence, encouragement is a form of accountability. Imagine if one stood up in the midst of the Babylonians and said, No, God didn't say, Let us come together. He said that we were supposed to be dispersed over the face of the earth so that we could do, subdue the whole planet and worship him and glory him as he will... They would have killed him right there. How can someone encourage without knowing what to encourage others about? People often become offended when others tell them how to live their lives, don't they? Don't tell me how to... You get, you get on the defensive. Don't tell me how to do it. When people do that in the church, they're being individuals. That's not what God created. He had to disperse the Babylonians so that he could begin again with a new nation of unified, covenanted believers together. A family, as a matter of fact, he began with. And out of that family came more families. And that's why he says the families of the world will be blessed as a result of your family. We won't mention that one by name, but just yet. We'll be talking about him in a couple of weeks. But he was called out of his father's house to start a new family that was different than the dispersed nations. 
God encouraged him, and he in turn encouraged others in the word to listen to what God had said. And thus, we should not be offended when others tell us how to live our lives if it's according to the word. It's the very thing that we're doing now. That's the very point of preaching, to conform us to what God tells us to do. Don't shoot the messenger. Listen to the message. Christians must exhort one another through the words of Christ so that they might be submissive before King Jesus and they might know Christ all the more. We have a loving Father that desires us to worship Him, that desires us to come before Him. If we are submissive to Him in everything, He will bless us. But if we reject the Word, He says He will reject us just as he did with the Babylonians. So let us take those two lessons. Let us take the lesson of apostasy that we would learn from the Babylonians, that, that in essence they were excommunicated, and let us also take the lesson of their power of encouragement. They were powerful in it. Everybody rebelled against God as a result of their encouragement. How much more then should the church of Christ encourage one another to good works and submissiveness to Christ that we might follow him with our whole heart? Let us not be afraid of one another. Let us encourage one another and spur one another on. Let's do the opposite of what the tower was about. And we see God doing that very thing in Acts chapter 2 when he gathers in the dispersed people and unifies them under one language in which they hear God being glorified on that day. Pentecost is the reversal of the Tower of Babel. The demonstration of God's glory in a unified people, but in a right way, in the Lord Jesus. Might we encourage one another in that way? Let us pray together and ask that the Lord would bless his word to our mind. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be gracious to us. We so need your gracious hand to help us, Lord, remember what your word says, that we might not stray from it, that we might not reject it, that you might not reject us, that you would help us, O Lord, to remain covenanted together, unified as a body, that we might glorify the head who is King Jesus, the rightful authority over our lives. But we ask that you would also help us to encourage one another and be much like the Babylonians in that respect, but that we would encourage one another in truth, that we might follow you with a whole heart, that we might love the Lord Jesus Christ more as we learn about him more, that we are encouraged to follow him, that as we call him Lord, Lord, we would do that which he so desires us to do. Help us, Lord, encourage one another daily, while it is still called today, to good works. The Babylonians encouraged one another to evil works. Help us do the opposite by the power of the Spirit, all for your glory. And we so ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. 
our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.